0: In reading through the passage this morning, it should be clear that we're talking about two groups of people. We're talking about Jews and Gentiles, and, and this mystery that the Apostle Paul refers to in the text, what is this mystery, what does it mean, and what, is it, what, is it, what are the implications for me? We're going to see through the, the course of this passage that there is oneness between Israel and between those who are Gentiles who've been brought in. But there's also distinctiveness. Oneness, yet distinctiveness. And as you know throughout the scripture, there are these, these, these parallel tracks of, of ideas that seem to be so opposite one another and yet they're consistent with one another. This is one of those. Uh, this morning in my news feed, I was thinking, how, how do I help people come to understand the oneness yet distinctiveness and try to paint a picture for them, however broken that picture is. But in my uh, news feed this morning, as I was uh, on the Google search engine, um, I saw this uh, little post about yesterday's game, the Ohio State beating Rutgers 49 to 10. How many of you are Ohio State fans in this room? We have some of those? I see a very high hand in the back. That's good. And, and those of you who, who enjoy Ohio State will, will know that there are different levels of enthusiasm. You know, I didn't grow up in Ohio, or at least I wasn't born in Ohio. I, I'm not really an Ohio State fan by, by heritage. I am because of being here and because I love you. So I, I, I love Ohio State <laughs> because I love you, all right? but then there's those of you who not only grew up in Ohio but also grew up in Columbus and so there is this sense in which there's ownership this is my hometown team this is the team I love And matter of fact yesterday as I was here there was uh, the, the, the guy who helps to clean the church was listening to the game there was an obvious interest in his mind at least as he was listening to the game I've realized that uh, being an Ohio State fan for some of you is an obsession we were looking for homes and there are actually rooms devoted to Ohio State I just could not believe it how is this possible and, and then two houses down there's a, there's a guy who actually painted his house in Ohio State colors I'm thinking wow that, uh, that's a true fan maybe a, verging on ridiculous as it was were but you can understand the the layers of enthusiasm begin to increase with the proximity that you have to Ohio State so that if you are or have been a student at Ohio State you can feel the victories and you can feel the defeats in a way that those of us who've never gone will never experience and and those of you who are employed at Ohio State and and even maybe Work for the team, the Ohio State football team. There's another layer of, of interest and excitement when they win, and there's this burden and agony when they lose. Now, imagine if you were actually on the team or had been part of the team at some point. When they win and when they lose, you feel it in a different way. And in some ways, it provides. A little bit of an illustration for us. Those of us, most of us in this room, who would consider ourselves outsiders in terms of the fact that we have not been born as individuals who are descendants of Abraham and thus Jewish, those of us who are Gentiles who have been brought into Christ because of faith, we can certainly enjoy the victories, but we'll never experience the victories like those who were born as Jews. Those who are descendants of Abraham. Those who can say, that is my heritage. That is my Messiah. He is part of me. And we can enjoy the benefits as those who are Gentiles brought in. But there is a layer of oneness and yet distinctiveness that we're going to talk about a little bit more this morning. Abraham was their father. Moses actually led their moms and dads out of Egypt. David was one of them of the tribe of Judah. Jesus as Savior, the Word of God, was a Jew and holds special place for those who are Jewish by heritage. We're going to talk about eschatology. As you know, we're in this series. It's called Then the End Will Come, 5 truths that will help shape your eschatology, and and we're gonna take another step of this today, and you might wonder, what in the world does this have to do with eschatology? Don't worry, by the time we get to next week, things will begin to come into focus, and you'll see the significance of how this plays a part in your framing and understanding of end time things. Last week, we compared eschatology with a puzzle. And we kind of dumped out a puzzle pieces on the table, as it were. And we, we wondered, how do we begin to put these pieces of the puzzle together? You can attack it a couple of different ways. You can just start to, to go after the, the puzzle and start putting them in place as you can. But the, the most effective way really is to have a reference point. To have the picture, the overall picture of this puzzle and have it laid out in front of you and then you can begin to, to assemble the colors and the shapes and the patterns and, and, and begin to put them in place. But then, as you have the reference point of the edges and the corners, then you begin to know, this is beginning to come together for me. And last week we saw that Jesus is the common reference point. Jesus is the one who spans from beginning to end. Jesus is the one that we saw in John chapter 1 who was the word of God. That word of God that spoke everything into creation, that word of God that, that makes its way through Genesis to Revelation, that consistent faithful reference point as we come to know Jesus will become to understand all of the knowledge of the Word of God in the Bible and it will begin to unlock for us these other areas that seem to be uh, pushed to the side. We come to know Jesus better. His master plan for the world will begin to unlock the door for eschatology. I want to just give you a glimpse of this from Ephesians chapter three verses seven to 11. I want you to see how having Jesus as a reference point should have made everything clear in terms of God's future plan for the world as it relates to our subject today. The subject of bringing Jews and Gentiles together. Notice, Paul is speaking here. He says, I was a minister, I became a minister to make all see what is the fellowship of this mystery. And we'll talk about this more. This mystery of Jews and Gentiles together. Which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. Now, just pause there for a moment. In the Apostle Paul's mind, this mystery was so clear in God that it should have been obvious. God, who created all things, the mystery of this fellowship this partnership of Jew and Gentile was so obvious that they had just known God, they would have been able to put all the pieces together. From start to finish, this plan was the same. This is not a plan B in God's operation of salvation. We'll see that in a moment. It says now, to the intent, that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. This mystery of Jew and Gentile together would ultimately culminate in this this fellowship called the church, and this church would be the mouthpiece to say, God wins. God will have his way. And so, if we had known the character of Christ, if we had understood the original intent of God, all of this would have been clear. If you had known Christ, you would have known that he would not fail. If you had known Christ, you would know that sin would not prevail in the garden. If you had known Christ, you would have known that Satan, in his words, in his work, would not spoil the work of God. Because God is preeminent, God is supreme. And if you had known Christ, you would have known that God would make a way to restore all things back to himself. If you had known the character of God from the beginning of the world and the, and the strategy, the master plan that he had for his creation, you would have known that nothing could have disrupted his power. Nothing could have gotten in the way and interfered with his master plan. It was evident, obvious, from the very beginning of the world. And that... Jesus then restores this group of people. This group of people called the church that we're going to look at this morning. And they would become a champion. They would become the mouthpiece of the victory that God had over sin and over death. And they will tell the principalities and powers through the witness of God bringing them together that God wins. In this way, Jesus is the reference point. So this week we're going to talk about and take a closer look at this union, this union of Jews and Gentiles. But in order for us to to press into this, we need to ask ourselves this question, what does this union between Jews and Gentiles mean? What does this oneness do? Does it obliterate the distinctiveness that once existed between Jews and Gentiles? And to answer this question, we're gonna look at Romans chapter 11. So if you're not there already, please turn with me to Romans chapter 11 page 947 in your pew Bible. Notice in verse 25, the first section, it says this, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Same word. The same word that the Apostle Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to look first of all at the mystery of the gospel. This mystery that Paul also refers to here in Romans 11. This mystery which is something hidden, something that was not fully manifested at the time. It's the same word, like I said, that he uses in Ephesians chapter 3. It's the same word word that he uses in in Colossians and and throughout the New Testament that that always refers to this union between Jews and Gentiles. But before we press in too deep, I need to make sure that we're all on the same page as it relates to who are the Jews and who are the Gentiles. Jews, as we'll find in Romans, are the descendants of Abraham. Abraham. Ethnic Israel. The word Jew originally derived from the word Yehuda, which is the word Judah. It's, they looked to Jesus, the Messiah, who was from the tribe of Judah, and they uh, established their identity on this future king, this future Messiah. Everything that, that they were, all their identity was resident within this one who would be the Messiah. But Paul will tighten this definition in Romans chapter 2, verses 26 and 29. Well, he'll help us to understand that, that to be a Jew is more than just being a descendant of a Jew. It, it requires something more when he says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from men, but from God. The Apostle Paul is speaking to those who are Jews. Those who can look back uh, in their ancestry and they can see that they belong to Abraham. They are physical descendants of Abraham and thus they are Jewish by lineage. But the Apostle Paul wants his audience to understand that that is not enough. He's not broadening his definition to include others. He's trying to say, no, I want to refine my definition so that you know that you're not Jewish just because you're related to Abraham. You're only Jewish if you also possess the faith of Abraham. And we'll see that more as we go along. He's tightening his definition, not expanding his definition to include others. We could make the same case for the church. You know, and I know, those who come to church who have been part of the fellowship, they are here week in and week out, maybe even have become members of the church, but you know that even being a member of a church or being a part of a fellowship does not mean that you are in Christ. And the same was true of Israel. Just because you can trace your lineage back to Abraham doesn't mean you're a true Jew in the sense that Paul will talk about in the book of Romans. So who are the Gentiles? Well, the Gentiles are those who are non-Jews. The nations, as we'll look at here in just a moment. A Gentile then is anyone who is not part of ethnic Israel. They can be adopted into Abraham. They can become a son of Abraham, but in no place in the New Testament are they then called true Israel. They're called a son of Abraham, but not a Jew. And that's important for us to understand. They were granted all the same privileges of Israel, faith in God, forgiveness of sin, access to God through prayer, the indwelling Holy Spirit, and special status as the children of God, which, by the way, was a teaching that made the Jews kind of bristle. They were wondering, wait a second, what does this mean, the, the, the welcoming of this new group of individuals, have, have they gotten away the way now of our special status? Maybe some of you who are older siblings may understand. When your younger brother or baby sister is born, you realize that all the attention that you got as a, as a, as a child has been re The focus has been redirected. You no longer occupy that special singular status that you once had. That favored treatment, now it's shared. And Israel, in some way, probably experienced a little bit of that. So not only were they those who enjoyed this union of Jews and Gentiles together, but we see that this is a truth that was built into the Old Testament from the very beginning. If they had known and looked at the Old Testament, if they had understood their starting point, they'd have seen God's master plan of bringing them together. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, and especially 2 to 3 help lay out this Abrahamic covenant, this, this promise, this contract that God made with Abraham for establishing this group of people who would eventually become the children of Israel. He says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Every family, every people, every nation, every group, every race of people who put their trust in God can enjoy the benefits of what God was promising to Abraham. That was the original plan of calling them apart from the nations and calling them to himself. Notice, as we saw last week, the divine initiative of God. God will make. God will bless God will curse. God will do it. It rests on his name. It rests on his reputation. It rests on his power to carry it through. So you can believe it's going to happen. God will do this. The promise of Abraham is so sure, is so so faithful and dependable, that the Apostle Paul refers to this in Galatians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Listen to this. Paul is writing, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. If you had known God in creation, you would have understood that He would bring the peoples of the world together. And if you had understood and paid attention to God's promise to Abraham, you would have known that God will bring the peoples together, Israel and the nations. But it doesn't stop there. If you had known God's heart as represented by the law, then you would also have seen the same truth. The truth that is prevalent throughout the Old Testament and especially through the the Exodus in Leviticus in Numbers. But I'm just going to call your attention to two. First in Exodus chapter 12, verses 43 to 51. And this is significant because Israel has not yet left Egypt. Israel has not yet been at Mount Sinai. They have not yet received this Mosaic covenant, this this contract of God to his people to help continue to establish him as his own. But notice what he says. This is the statute of the Passover. Nor foreigner shall eat of it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. That's significant. There should be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. I will see them as the same person. They will have the same law. They will enjoy the same benefits. And then in Numbers chapter 15, after a long list of all the things that uh, Israel was permitted to do in relationship to sacrifices, burnt offerings, free will offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings, he comes to this conclusion in verse 14. And if a stranger is sojourning with you and wishes to offer a food offering, He shall do as you do. For the assembly, there shall be one statute for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you. A statute forever throughout your generations, you and the sojourner shall be alike before the Lord. One law and one rule shall be for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you. In this way, nothing has changed. In this way, the plan of God for uniting Jews and Gentiles has remained fixed and consistent. It was obvious that until Jesus came, though, that Jews and Gentiles would access God on the same terms, the same reference point, the same faith in Jesus. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him. For righteousness, Jew and Gentile both could enjoy fellowship and relationship with God through the same faith. The faith is shared with Abraham. So why does this matter? Well, it matters because of the continuity of Scripture coming into focus again. It matters because we see that God's original plan for salvation has not changed. From Old to New Testament, it, is, it has been consistent. He always intended the Jews and Gentiles to enjoy relationship with him through faith, the faith that was counted as righteousness. Relationship with God, worship of God happened not because of genetics. It happened because of faith. And Israel should have understood this. So there's two statements I want to kind of bring to a head for us today in our focus today, our our, our talking today. And it's this, just as a distinct Israel should have understood their future union with the Gentiles in the Old Testament, so too a unified Gentile who enjoys unity with Jews because of faith in Christ should understand their continuing distinctiveness with Israel. And in this way, the church has not replaced Israel. In this way, the testimony and consistency of the plan of God in salvation in bringing Jew and Gentile together has been the same from start to finish. From the very beginning of creation until the future day, now that we're in the church age, God in bringing Jew and Gentile together does not mean that now the, Jew, the Gentiles in the church replaces the promises given to the Jews and we'll look at that more next week. This is significant truth. So we see the mystery of the gospel. We see the mystery of the gospel that was contained all the way from the beginning. We see the mystery of the gospel that is resident and active through the faith of God working in the hearts of Jews and Gentiles alike to bring them into relationship with one another, oneness yet distinctiveness the mystery of the gospel. Now let's turn our attention to the means of grace to the Jews and Gentiles. The means of grace to the Jews and Gentiles we see again in verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unwise of the mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The means of grace to the Jews and Gentiles is not to make them the same, but to allow there to be oneness and yet also distinctiveness. So we're gonna look at their oneness and their distinctiveness. Paul, in describing this special plan of God, is speaking directly to the Gentiles in the audience that he's writing to. He wants them not to get cocky. Don't get cocky. Don't think that just because God has turned his attention to you and has allowed you to enter in on the same terms as the Jews, don't think that now God has set the Jews aside and wants nothing to do with them. Don't be unwise. Don't be unaware. Recognize that the partial hardening that God has allowed to Israel is just so that he can demonstrate and extend his mercy to you. Romans Eleven twenty-six 26 through the end of the chapter 25 to the end of the chapter is really a summary of the first several chapters of romans and paul will draw attention to these two groups uh, uh, over and over again um, 85 times in 30 excuse me 55 times in 38 verses the apostle paul will use these two terms he doesn't use them interchangeably he uses them to designate specific categories of people those who are Jews and those who are Gentiles without any blending and then in order to help describe their oneness he uses the term brothers and he uses this term brothers 20 times throughout the book of Romans to describe the believers who share unity with one another because of a common faith in Jesus Christ Throughout Romans, Paul will demonstrate their oneness and yet their distinctiveness. Let me just take you on a mini tour. We see that they're both one and they both need the gospel. They both need the gospel. Romans chapter one, verse 16 says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. They both are in need. Of the gospel. And God came to present this gospel good news to the Jews so they could enjoy the benefits of what was promised to Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. Both are also going to be judged because of sin. They're going to be judged for sin. In Romans chapter 2, verse 9, he says, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Both stand in the, in the path of judgment. If they decide to do what is wrong, if they s- decide to step outside of the, of the standard that God has set, they will uh, expect the same kind of judgment, whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Greek. Both also have access to peace. Notice in Romans chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, The passage continues. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Now that's really good news, right? You do good, you can enjoy glory and honor and peace. Well, there's a problem, and that's what we're getting to next in Romans chapter 3. Both have a fundamental problem. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 17 says what then are we Jews any better off no not at all for we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin as it is written none is righteous no not one no one understands no one seeks for God all have turned aside together they have become worthless no one does good not even one whether you're a Jew whether you're a Greek You are then under condemnation. You are under judgment because you can't perform the righteousness that the law expects. You can't measure up. You are that evil person in verse 9. You are not the good person in verses 10 and 11. You are in the place of judgment because of your sin because no one does good, not even one. But there is hope. And that's where Paul turns next. Both can obtain righteousness you can't have a righteousness of your own you can't measure up to God's standard but there is a righteousness that is available to you that we find in Romans chapter 3 verses 21 and 22 it says this but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe there is no distinction now that is really good news Because it doesn't matter how well or how poorly you perform. And by the way, no one in this room can perform up to the standard that God has set. Because no one can be perfect. Only God was perfect. But Jesus Christ met and fulfilled all of the requirements of the law. And Jesus alone is able then to impart his righteousness to you and it comes through one way, through one means that we're going to see next. It comes through God in faith. We can come to God in faith and enjoy the righteousness that God offers. Romans chapter 3, verses 27 and 28 says, then what, what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, no. But by the law of faith, for we hold that no one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Meaning nobody in this room can ever perform in a way that measures up to the standard that God has set. And so God does that intentionally so that none of us can pat ourselves on the back and say, Hey, we've arrived. Boasting is excluded. (laughs) No one in this room can boast. We can only boast in faith in Christ and the work that he's done for us. And so whether you are circumcised and enjoy the benefits of righteousness of God through faith, or whether you're uncircumcised and still enjoy the benefits of righteousness through faith, it comes one way, through faith. So Paul goes on in verses 29 and 30, and he says, is God the God of the Jew only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, yes of the Gentiles also since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. God does it so that God can boast. God gets the glory by his work of righteousness in you and accomplishing victory over the sin that Adam and Eve performed in the garden and that you carry on in yourself because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God wins. God wins because God came and performed the standard of righteousness to the law. God came and paid the penalty of sin on the cross because the wages of sin is death. Sin demands the price of death for us and Jesus paid that price so that we could enjoy his righteousness through faith. Do you this morning, have you this morning enjoyed the benefits of of all that God gives through his son, Jesus Christ. Whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, have you come to a place of recognizing that you are not righteous? that there's none righteous, no, not one. There's only one righteous and that is God alone and it's through faith in Jesus Christ that you can enjoy the benefits of not only relationship with God but also the benefits of relationship in the community and all the promises that God has given to his people through the history we can partake in as we enjoy fellowship with one another through faith in Jesus Christ. The oneness and yet distinctiveness that we have as Jew and Gentile. But also their dependence on God's sovereignty. We turn to that next. Here again at the, at the last part of verse 25, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. Well, what is this partial hardening that Paul is describing? Why was this necessary? This word for hardening is a word for stubbornness, a word to render insensitive, a, a word for, for being callous. Now, some of you may have calluses on your hands or your feet because of the work that you do. Uh, my feet are pretty tender, and I discovered that again last night as I was walking my uh, son-in-law and daughter to their car across our front lawn. And we, have a, we have an oak tree, drops all these acorns, and the, and the squirrels crack them open, and so you've got the sharp edges. So you're kind of walking, trying to find your way through, and you realize how sensitive your feet are. But God allowed there to be hardness, a partial hardening on his people. God allowed his people not to see the Messiah. He allowed blindness. He allowed them to experience all the miracles, to hear all the words of Jesus, to even come to the place of asking the question, could this be the Messiah? And yet for all of that, they still rejected him. For all of that, they still put him on the cross, and it was all a part of God's master plan to bring in the Gentiles. As we find, the next few verses will help us to see this, and we will reiterate this promise. Verses twenty-six and twenty-eight, excuse me, in twenty-nine tell us as regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, speaking of the Jews. But in regards to election, they are, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gift and the calling of God are irrevocable. Meaning they became enemies, the Jews, of the Messiah by killing Jesus on the cross. But it wasn't a surprise to God. It was part of His divine plan. It didn't interfere with God's purposes for them as a people. He still intends to keep his purposes because he wasn't surprised by the rebellion. And the rebellion, by the way, wasn't anything new. It was the same rebellion that God saw time and time and time and time again, and yet still continued to affirm his promises to them, his commitment to keep his word by his power. Same is true of Jesus in being put on the cross. He didn't need a do-over. He didn't need to start from scratch. He didn't need a new people like what you find with Moses there at Mount Sinai. Jesus continues, or God affirms his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He will continue to be faithful to a people who are rebellious to him. Verses 30 to 32 of chapter 11. For just as you Gentiles were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too, meaning the Jews, have become disobedient in order that by mercy, the mercy shown to you, they may also receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. (laughs) Somehow, in the mind of God, all of these come together where God allows disobedience and hardening, hardening for a time so that the Gentiles can come in in full number. And then, when the Gentiles come in in full number, we want to see the beginning part of Romans 11. The jealousy that they have for the Gentiles will bring in the full number of Jews. Romans 11, 1 and 2. Notice, I ask you then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. As a matter of fact, now in chapter 11, verse 11, so why did God do it this way? Well, we find out. He answers this, this question. So I ask then, verse 11, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentile. So as to make Israel jealous. Meaning, God knew that opening the door to the Gentiles would feed a jealousy in the Jews and would not only lead to mercy to the Gentiles to draw them into salvation, but then as a result of jealousy, God will enact his plan to draw the rest of Israel to himself. Romans 11, verse 12. If their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? If God has shown through this master plan that he has an affection for outsiders. He has an affection for the stranger and the sojourner. He has an affection for the Gentile, those who are not a part of ethnic Israel. If God has shown through mercy of a partial hardening to Israel to draw in the, the Gentiles, how much more will God's faithfulness to his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to his people, how much more now will the world look and say, God is amazing. He could do it all. Somehow in this master plan that we see from start to finish, he not only has found a way to draw in the Gentiles, but a way to draw in the Jews as well. This final plan for Israel is full inclusion as we see in chapter 11, verse 26. In this way, all Israel will be saved. God will accomplish in some way by making them jealous, opening the door for the, for the Gentiles, by calling in and bringing in the rest of his people to himself. God will make good on his word. Notice, as it is written, verse 26, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will uh, be my covenant with them, I will take away their sins. This is lifted from Isaiah chapter 58, verses 20 and 21. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 9. The words of the prophets will be true, and they will come to pass just as they said and just as you expected. God will fulfill his word to Jacob. He will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness. He will establish his covenant. He will take away their sins because God is faithful. Jesus is the reference point that makes it possible. And Paul will testify through this book and you'll see in the last two pages of your, of your outline all of, the, all of the verses from the Old Testament that Paul uses in the book of Romans that continue to affirm and confirm God's faithfulness to keep his word to the prophets just the way he intended. So what does this do for us? What should this do for us? Well, Paul gives us the answer in the last part of this this chapter. It should lead us to worship. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So a study of eschatology is not so that we can be smarter and not so that we know necessarily what's coming. A study of eschatology is to drive us to worship. Is to help us understand the unsearchable riches and knowledge of God in accomplishing his master plan from start to finish without fail, without interference. He's the God who will do it. He will accomplish it. So as as we stand here today, as we sit here today and understand and recognize these truths, it should call our hearts to worship a God who made it all possible. And if you're a Gentile this morning like I am, and you enjoy the benefits of faith in Jesus Christ, and the benefits of all of the blessings promised to Israel, relationship with God, being called a son of God, you have the indwelling Holy Spirit, forgiveness of sin, you should worship, I should worship the God has made it all possible. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you for this work of salvation, this work of bringing rescue, this work of overcoming what seemed to be uh, uh, irreparable in the garden, sin that disrupted not just uh, humanity, but disrupted all of creation. So we find in Romans chapter 8 that all creation groans with eager longing at at the adoption of your sons, the redemption of your sons. And so, this morning as we have enjoyed the benefits of the master plan and seeing it put together, may it lead our hearts to greater worship, greater wonder of who you are and what you've accomplished for us. And, God, may it create within us a zeal to tell others about this incredible gospel message, this good news. May we see many come to faith in Christ because of this affection in our hearts to submit to you, to love you, to worship you the way you deserve. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming this morning. God bless you.